Well, good morning, friends. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Ruth. If you're using one of the Bibles in the pew in front of you, you'll find it on page 408. And we're going to be starting a new sermon series that will take us all the way up to and through Easter on the gospel, excuse me, on the book of Ruth. And I just want to encourage you, I came across this wonderful book as I was I'm doing some preparation called The Gospel of Ruth. So if you hear me call it The Gospel of Ruth, um, it's because I'm getting the title in my head. Uh, love, loving God enough to break the rules. Um, so if you're a little, I got a little spunk in you, or if you don't got a little bit of spunk in you, um, this, is a, this is actually a commentary, but it doesn't read like a commentary. Uh, and the author um, has a Master of Arts in Biblical Studies. Um, she's, she does a really, really good job Uh, just presenting some of the truth. I'm going to reference a quote from her uh, later. But if you want a copy of this, uh, they're on sale at the Welcome Center, 10 bucks, um, which is uh, a little bit cheaper than what you can get get it for on Amazon. Um, So you're welcome to pick up a copy of that if you would like um, as we're going through. And if we run out uh, of copies, uh, Martha will take your name down and I'll order some more uh, later this week for you to have next week. Uh, But while I was uh, in my Hebrew class, um, I... I fell in love with the book of Ruth. In, in fact, we actually had to translate the entire book of Ruth from Hebrew into English. Now, before you say, wow, our pastor's really smart, what I had to do is I had to use the software that told me what the Hebrew was and then do a word-for-word translation of the Hebrew. So I, didn't, I wasn't like changing forms or anything like that. I, that is, I am not that smart. Uh, and, and so I took the Hebrew, and I would actually read out the Hebrew, and I would write it word-for-word word in English, and then I'd have to smooth it over so it, so it actually sounded um, coherent um, and not like, some, uh, like you would be hearing Yoda speak. Uh, if you were to read it. And so I fell in love um, with the book of Ruth. It is actually such a wonderful, wonderful book, uh, and especially more so in the Hebrew. Um, It is argued that it's perhaps the best written story in the Bible, at least from a literary uh, standpoint. Uh, It has such a complex and layered story plot and storyline through it, yet it resonates so well with the human soul on, the, on a, just a basic level. It's just a really good story. Now, uh, if you give the story more than a quick read, as maybe some of you do when you're trying to get through your Bible reading plans, you get to the book of Ruth on your reading plan, it's like, oh, it's only four chapters. I should be able to burn through this pretty quickly, right? Uh, but if you stop and pause for a moment and go back and reread it slowly, you'll find yourself being torn up by grief and tragedy as a faithful woman named Naomi. It's written Naomi, but it's actually pronounced Naomi. As Naomi uh, 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 clings precariously to what little faith she has left in Yahweh. Your heart will flutter as you watch a budding romance develop into an uncommon marriage proposal. You'll be riveted in suspense as you see this man named Boaz cleverly strategize how he's going to win the right to marry the girl. And finally, you will rejoice as you see the results of faithful obedience to the plans 
and provision of God. As he not just redeems a woman and her joy. Not just as he redeems, in fact, an entire family. Not just as he redeems, in fact, an entire nation. But also he comes as a redeemer to our entire world. But friends, I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. The first thing we need to do is introduce ourselves to some of the main characters and the backstory that they find themselves in. We're going to take these next six weeks leading up to and including Easter to take a peek during a dark period of history for Israel. And we're going to see how God shines forth his light and love to people who feel abandoned by God. And let me tell you, as you read the story of Ruth and as you understand the backstory, you're going to see some parallels between her world, between Naomi's world, and our own. And we're going to see that there is nothing new under the sun. And actually, history has a funny way of repeating itself. The book of Ruth is for people who wonder about the goodness of God when their lives are hit with one tragedy or another. It's a story about God using ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Amen? Amen. And friends, would you please stand with me as a way to honor God's word? And follow along as I read uh, from Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And let me just say this. Um, before we get to the text, uh, I love participation, okay? Uh, some of you uh, know that I'm Bapticostal. I've got a little charismatic in me. I'm excitable. I know that comes as a shock and a surprise. And some of you, while you're in the seat, you just want to say amen or preach it or, oh, wow. Please feel free if the Holy Spirit says something to you and you want to say, it's not going to offend me. Your neighbor might look at you a little funny, but that's okay. Just smile right back. Okay. <laughs> can we, can we do that? Can we participate in this? Yeah. Amen. Starting in verse one, in the days when the judges ruled, another translation says in the day when the judges were judging, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah together with his wife and sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judea. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. She was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Friend, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, I know, friends, that it may seem kind of odd that we introduce a story and we only get five verses and it seems like there's little hope, right? We see a famine in the land. We see a father and a husband uproot his family and go to a foreign land as sojourners. And we're going to unpack that in a little bit. But they go to live in a foreign land and there where they think they're going to escape tragedy... 
tragedy still finds them. And Elimelech dies. And Naomi, while that's tragic, is that I think says to herself, at least I still have my two boys. And sadly, after 10 years, the boys die. And it's her and Orpah and Ruth. In a foreign land, with no provider, in tragedy, waiting to see what God's going to do. Now, what we have to do is we've got to get a little bit of background on this. Now, uh, while this book is given Ruth's name as the title uh, by the unknown author, we have no idea who wrote it. Um, While it's called the book of Ruth, it's actually written from the perspective of Naomi. It starts with Naomi. It starts with the tragedy that befalls her. It starts with her expressions of faith and it ends with her experiencing great joy and redemption and hope for the future. Within the first five verses, we see three key main characters taken out of the story. And it's the author's way of telling you to say, focus on Naomi. Focus on this woman. And by extension, focus on Ruth. There are a number of themes that surround this story But I believe the major dominant theme is that of redemption and how God redeems a family and a people and how God will eventually redeem all of humanity through the faith of this woman, Naomi. It's a romance story. It's a romance of redemption. Now, the history, the story takes place during the time of Judges. This was a 400-year period after Joshua and the Israelites had come into the promised land And before there were any kings, so there's no king ruling, and it's after Joshua has died. Judges 2.10 tells us that after Joshua's death, another generation grew up who knew neither Yahweh nor what he had done for Israel. Can we just pause for a moment and say, do we not see that in our society today? That there are generations of young people in, in especially America, but in Western society that have no clue of the stories, the basic stories of scripture. I remember this one time I was, uh, I may have shared this story with you. I was uh, on a de- uh, uh, deployment to California um, where our, I know rough, it wasn't really, it, we call it a TDY, but I'd have to explain that. Anyway, I was in California. We were launching our planes out of California and I walk into this office where there's a guy scheduling the pilots for the missions. It's called ops scheduling. And, uh, and I go and his last name's Meshach. I'm like, awesome. Um, and I go up to him, I go, did, did, did you get made fun of when you were a kid? And he's like, no, why? And he's looking at me like, and I'm like, your last name's Meshach. I was like, yeah, what of it? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Yeah, never heard of them. Uh, the guys in the fiery furnace, th- like, like Book of Daniel? Had, had no clue. Had no clue. That's, that's, I think, typical of the society that we're growing up in. That the stories that, that would seem common to us who grew up in the church are uncommon. And, and so what we see is even in our own time, there are generations who grow up not knowing Yahweh or his commands or what it means to follow him. There was a failure 
on behalf of the people of Israel to raise up leaders to continue to lead them in faithful obedience to God. And friends, the responsibility still is ours today. Not just me. Okay, some of you think that it's my responsibility to do it all, right? After all, that's what you pay me for, right? To be your pastor, to shepherd you, to do it all for you. I'm going to tell you, friends, I'm going to let you down. I'm not going to be judged for how you lived your individual lives. I will be judged for how I shepherd and cared for you. Okay, so there's a, there's a big mantle of responsibility. But God causes all of us who have been walking with Jesus for any length of time to share that faith and to raise up other people to know. I have two humans in my household who I know they're my greatest ministry and their names are Judah and Olivia. It's not your responsibility, church, though you partner with me to raise my kids to love God. That is my responsibility. It's your responsibility to raise up your families and your friends and your neighborhoods and your work centers. It's your responsibility to make sure that as best as you can and as imperfect as you are, amen? amen. To make sure that your world knows of the glory and goodness and love of Yahweh, your heavenly father and his son, Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit. Now, as a result of this lack of leadership, the religious and moral ethic could be summed up as the ending verse of Judges 25 tells us, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Is that not indicative of our world today? Whatever's good for you is good for you. It might not be good for me. We see things like that all the time in our society. And we see people living all kinds of manner of, of lifestyles and choices and, and things that um, would shock us, would make us be bashful, but it's nothing new under the sun. And so what happens is the nation of Israel gets into this cycle of rebellion and sin, whereby God would then send judgment and discipline in the form of either an invading army or a famine, some sort of natural disaster, as a way of telling them, wake up. If you would obey me, there's blessings. But if you disobey me, there's curses. If you just obey me, I will take care of you. If you don't, then the natural consequences is that armies are going to invade, famines are going to happen. And so what would happen in the book of Judges is people, they'd get to a breaking point and they would realize, wait a minute. Worshiping all of these false gods and all these other idols have done nothing for us. We forgot to worship Yahweh. And they would cry out to God for help. Save us, Lord, save us. One of the best prayers in scripture is, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Amen? That's why there's no magic formula to it, friends. So they would cry out to God, save us. And God would send a deliverer, uh, typically a military or political uh, hero called a judge who would come and rescue them and deliver them from their oppression and plight and things would go well for a season and then they would get back into their rebellion and sin and the cycle would continue for 400 years right let's just pause for a moment let's be honest does that sound like your life does that sound like my life 
where I go through these cycles of great connection with God. Maybe I'm not uh, worshiping, you know, idols and demons and, and other things, and maybe I'm not getting all steeped in this sort of stuff, but, but don't I just get too comfortable with God sometimes and I find myself falling into temptation and making choices that I should not be making? And I even can see some cycles going on in my life, Right? I think this is what's taking place in our world today. I think, I think we're getting to a place where we're about to experience revival. Did you know revival comes out of conflict and crisis, not out of good times? And, and, and I was listening to a podcast this morning about how uh, the, the theologians, the pastors were saying, we think that we're getting close to that time of revival um, where we just say, man, Christianity isn't what it should be. It isn't what we see in the scriptures, and, and I can just get this sense that God's going to be stirring up and doing a new thing. So, so what happens is during this dark time, during the rebellion, the Israelites would turn to all manner of paganism and idolatry, which involved child sacrifice and temple prostitution. It was, it was ugly, friends. It was really, really ugly. And it's against this backdrop that the story of Naomi and her daughter Ruth unfolds. Now, I see uh, three main purposes for writing this book. The first uh, purpose is a historical one. Uh, It defends the validity of David's claim to the throne and right to rule. At the end of uh, the book of Ruth, kind of as an addendum to the story of, of Ruth, we get this genealogy of how the grandson of Naomi, Obed, becomes David's grandfather. And it's through this family that we see Israel's greatest king come from. And so part of one of the historical purposes for writing this book, it is supposed, is as a way of defending David's right to rule. There is, however, this timeless purpose that despite our own conceptions of usefulness, of talent and desirability, God has the need to use everyone for his glory and our good. And, and that's the second purpose, is the current purpose. It, it means something for you. Most of us probably could care less about David's lineage, right? Because we're not Jewish, we're not Israeli, we have a president, not a king, right? And so some of us, we're not as big into the genealogies, um, though there's some really great studies that will enrich your faith. If you uh, actually look through those and study them as opposed to just skipping right by them. Uh, But the, the current purpose for you and I is that while we might think that we are undesirable, God desires greatly to use us and God desires greatly to use Naomi and Ruth to do some amazing things. Uh, Not only is there a historical purpose or a current cultural purpose for us, but there's also a divine purpose that I see in this story. And that is that Yahweh has never abandoned us. Amen? God never has abandoned mankind. He doesn't abandon his people. And he has always had a plan to redeem us from ourselves. And that's good news, friends. That's the reason why Ruth is considered or, or could be called a gospel is because it's about God's redemption of mankind. And so, friends, if you're taking notes, this gets me to the big idea of our text today, and it'll, and it'll go through our story. And if you're taking notes, write this down, that God is known for turning tragedy into triumph. 
God knows how to take a tragic story and make something beautiful and glorious out of it. In this book that I read uh, on the book of Ruth, the writer says this, her, and the quote will be up on the screen for you to follow along, her, Naomi, that her story reminds us that our struggles are also important. And that even when there is nothing left but rubble, God is mysteriously at work in the mess. How many of you have ever cried out to God and said, God, what on earth are you doing? And your life, you're living with a question mark. And you don't get it. And you don't, you're not sure what to make of what's going on in your life. It's because God's behind the scenes working mysteriously to do something good and glorious in you and through you. Like we see him doing that for Naomi and for Ruth. So if that's the big idea that God is known for turning tragedy into triumph, I want us to focus on, I think, three lessons that we can take directly from our text today. For those taking notes, the first lesson is this. Don't rush to escape suffering. Don't rush to escape suffering. Friends, I have to tell you, um, especially millennials, I'm going to come hard on you because I'm a millennial and I have to come hard on myself. We do not suffer well. We whine. We whine. We're a bunch of whiners. We don't like pain. We don't like sorrow. We don't like grief. Now, this isn't to say walk around beating yourselves up. Okay, I'm not telling you to go around being Eeyores, okay? But friends, we have, uh, we have a hard time suffering in our world today. And actually, um, if you go back uh, to uh, a Greek understanding of the definition for happiness, right? Because after all, we're supposed to be pursuing happiness, whatever that may be. I don't know yet because um, I'm still pursuing it. Uh, but according to the Greeks, happiness equals virtue, that to have true happiness, and that's the, that's the backdrop of the New Testament, that true happiness is found in a virtuous lifestyle. Sticking with it when it's tough. Not punching out at the first sign of hardship. Staying committed in your relationships. Staying committed in your work centers. Staying committed to parenting. Oh my gosh, my, I'm a single dad for the weekend. And I realized I can't turn it off. I can't take a break. I've got to be parenting my kids. And my wife suggested this nighttime potty thing where now before I go to bed, I have to wake my kids up and take them to the potty. I can't just, even though I'm tired and I want to do my own things and I want to go work out, I I can't because I've got people I've got to take care of. But so much in our world today says, man, Go and, make, go and pursue what makes you feel good, right? And that's the cultural definition of, of happiness today is do what makes you feel good. So if you're in that relationship with that person, that husband or that wife, that girlfriend or that boyfriend, and they don't, you don't like them, they're not, they're not making you happy, hey, just end it and go find something better. Find something that makes you happy. Your boss is riding you hard and is a jerk. Just quit and move on. How many of you, just by raise of hands, I, I just want to see this. This is dangerous, I know. How many of you worked for the same job 
for 30 plus years and have a pension from that job? I'm not raising my hand. I could. I have 21 years in the military tomorrow, so almost. A few of you, right? If you look at the resume of most kids today, you need like 10 pages. Whereas before the resume was like, here's one page. I maybe had three jobs. One was I was a teenager, one was I was young married, and then I got serious about a career. Right? Everything in our society today, with especially millennials and Gen Xers and Generation Z, there's another generation, folks, okay, called Gen Z, and they're in the workplace. They don't even remember 9-11. Can you believe that? Wow. Blows your mind. And we're going to help you with that in a couple weeks with another small group to help you understand millennials and Gen Xers and Gen Zs. Anyway. All this is to say is we do not have a theology of suffering. Our medical care system does not have a good theology of suffering. I'm not saying we should be gluttons for punishment. And I'm not saying that we should use medicines as God's gift to help us transition from this life to the next if that happens to be where we're at. But, and I'm not saying don't go to the doctor for chemo treatments or, or because you have a broken arm. You know, I, I'm not saying don't go seek medical attention, but a lot of medical attention is focused on delaying the inevitable. Friends, I read a statistic once that said the death rate is still 100%. The, the death rate is still 100%. We, we all will experience what it means for this body, this flesh, to wear out and to die. And in our theology of suffering, we're saying, how can we delay that? How can we delay that? How can we delay that? I once heard it said by a, a professor as this, uh, that, that if you're ever at that point in time where you know um, that it's a choice between extending life by months or by graduating to glory, and, and you love Jesus, okay, Okay, this is for those who love Jesus. It's like being on a plane that's on the taxiway getting ready to go to Hawaii and you're telling the pilot, don't take off yet, I'm not ready. Okay, to make it even better, it's like you're in Portland in the middle of winter about to go to Hawaii or the middle of March, right? And, and, and you're just saying, no, don't, I'm not ready yet, I'm not ready yet, I'm not ready because we don't know what it means to suffer. In that same podcast that I read this morning as I was working out, it was funny, there was a story, uh, that one, one of the pastors is from Australia, he said that there's a children's story now of Little Red Riding Hood, where it's retranslated the story where Little Red Riding Hood, no joke, uh, she goes into, where's grandmother? Grandmother didn't get eaten by the wolf. Oh, no, no, we can't do that. That's too dangerous for kids to read. Grandmother's just scared and hiding in the closet. We live in a world where every kid gets a participation ribbon. Right? We don't know what it means to struggle and to fight and to wrestle. We're weak emotionally and mentally and theologically. And if there's anything that the story of Ruth, I think, is going to tell us, is don't, don't rush to escape suffering. Don't be a glutton for punishment, okay? There's a difference. Don't be an Eeyore. But friends, don't be afraid if you are suffering. Friends, this is something, it was crazy. As I was writing this out, it was like the Holy Spirit was saying, yeah, Steve, are you getting this? 
Are you getting this? Being a pastor is hard, friends. Being a people-pleasing pastor is hard. Being a pastor who wants to save you from your sin and yourselves is really hard because you won't get along with me. I'm teasing. But it's hard and it's rough and there's way, we all suffer, we all suffer. And the, and the easy thing, punch the button and eject. Go find something new. In Christianity, we say, the Lord just had a different direction. Right? Now, it's interesting that when we look at our text, uh, the author says that a famine entered the land. The word for famine can mean hunger or starvation. Friends, we do not understand the word famine. We do not understand it. Even the poorest among us can go get a free meal at the Union Gospel Mission or at any number of places. We do not understand what it's like to not be able to have any food at all. And yet we find that there's this this famine and, and we see Elimelech. He decides to try to avoid the disaster by moving his family to a foreign land to avoid the famine. When instead he should have been saying to himself, God, why is this famine here? Our people need to repent. It's probably because our nation hasn't been following you and obeying you. And it's interesting. If you look at the name Elimelech, okay, it has the word El, which is God, and Melech, which is king. And his name means my God, my king, or God is my king. And yet in the story, we see him not exhibiting that kind of faith That God is his king and God will provide for him here in his place. If he would but repent and help lead his people into repentance. I think it's because he had maybe a weak theology understanding of suffering. Friends, if you're taking notes, the second lesson is this. God's timing is not our timing. We live in a microwave culture, friends, right? We punch in the prayer buttons, put the prayer in the microwave, and we expect after 30 seconds on high power, we open it up, and there should be the result. It says in verse 1 that Elimelech and his family went to live for a while in Moab. The Hebrew word for this is the word ger. Can you say ger? Ger. Got to move away. And the word is more descriptive of a sojourner or a migrant worker in our vernacular today. Sojourners are not like foreigners visiting country as tourists. It's not like he's going to get his passport stamped and go see the sites. Rather, they've settled in a foreign land with the intent to be there to make a living, to live. Now, while there were provisions and protections for sojourners in Israel, for the foreigner, the alien that's living in your midst, there were protections in Israel. These protections were non-existent if you're an Israelite living in a foreign land. Elimelech and Naomi were to be at the mercy of their hosts. They thought that their time in Moab would not be long. 
that they would only be sojourners, migrants. However, in verse 2, we're told that they went to Moab and lived there. Not sure if they bought a piece of property or became tenant farmers and were able to live there while they worked uh, the land, but they were there. Another translation says, uh, uses the word, they, there they remained. What they thought was going to be a short in duration turned into a longer time span. And when we get to verse 4, we are told, wow, we're living here for 10 years. You know what we call you at 10 years? We call you a resident, <laughs> Right? Okay, I've lived in Oregon for uh, about 12 years. I can't say that I'm a Washingtonian anymore. I'm a resident. I live here. Now, I know, whoo, Oregon, keep it weird. Uh, I know that 10 years may not seem like a long time to, to some of you, but if you're an Israelite living in a foreign country, oh my gosh, that was like eternity To make matters worse, Moab bordered just on the east side of Israel on the Jordan River, and it's supposed that where they settled, they could look down and see their home country on a regular basis. They were homesick. Think of how homesick Naomi must have felt. Think of the loneliness after losing her husband and her two sons and the longing for home that she had. Now, regarding God's way of keeping time, we're told by Peter that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come into repentance. And regarding judgment, God's judgment, Paul teaches us to not show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Friends, some of the... Uh, one of the reasons why you may experience tragedy in life is because you have disobeyed God. Because you have not been wise with the life that he gave you. You have made bad decisions. And sometimes that's the reason why you're stuck in a crisis or a tragedy. And the reason why you're in it is because God wants to love you and teach you something through it. So if that's you and you're experiencing that today, understand that God's timing is not your timing. Friends, sometimes you're in an experience, you're in a tragedy because of the sin of someone else. And while that is not fair at all, whoever said life was going to be fair. And if we get upset about how other people's sin affects our lives, we should get equally as upset about how our sin affects others. Friends, God's timing is not our timing. We do not know what God is doing in the moment, but it's only once he gets us through it. And as we look back on our lives, it was only as Naomi looked back, she was able to see what God was doing, bringing her along the way. Friends, God's timing is not our timing. What you see as a tragedy, God uses as a vessel to bring you to a place of trust and obedience in what he is doing in your life. So not only should you understand that God's time is not, your, is not your timing, not only should you not rush to escape suffering, but friends, here's the last lesson for us to learn. God can use anyone. One person's alive today. God can use anyone. 
That is good news. In our story, what we find is that God is going to use a Moabite woman to bring about the redemption of Naomi, to bring about her own redemption, to bring about the redemption of her people, and to bring about the redemption of mankind. This is amazing stuff. God uses anyone for his glory and our good. If you understand the relationship between the Moabites and the Israelites, they were cousins. They were related. Um, Moab was the oldest son born to Lot, Abraham's nephew. Lot had an incestuous relationship with his oldest daughter. And the son that was born to her was named Moab. And he became the father of the Moabite people, the Jordanians, where the kingdom of Jordan is in that country today. And for the most part in Israel's history, they were a little bit passive with each other, um, but they never came to aid Israel in their time of need. And there was one time in the book of Judges, King Eglon, the king of the Moabites, actually um, subdued part of the country of Israel and made them pay tribute and taxes to him. And so there's this tenuous relationship. And Israelites Uh, An Israelite man, it was okay for him to marry a a Moabite woman. There was no provision. Couldn't marry marry Canaanite women, but he could marry a Moabite woman. Uh, But they were she was not allowed to participate in the community of faith unless she became a full-on proselyte. She left everything and had to identify as an Israeli. And we're going to see Ruth do that next week. It's going to be an amazing story. But a a Jewish woman was not allowed to marry a Moabite man because it was more easy. And it was the culture. I don't necessarily agree with it, but it was the culture. She most likely, her and her children would be enticed to go worship pagan gods like Chemosh and other deities that are gross. And so the reason why I say that is we see this unlikely woman, a Moabitess, that becomes a heroine. Heroine, a hero in the story. And it tells us that God can use anyone. You don't have to be a professional pastor for God to use you to share his love. You don't have to have formal seminary training. God can use you to share his love. And so friends, this is the romance of the story for you and I today. That even when all things are tragic, God is still doing something. And if we'll stick with him long enough, if we'll trust him through it, he will turn our tragedy into triumph. Amen? So friends, don't escape suffering too quickly. Understand that God's timing is different than our own. And understand that God wants to use you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the story of Naomi and her faithfulness to you and the fact that you use her daughter-in-law, Ruth, a foreigner, to do amazing things, not just in the history of Israel, but in our history. And not just in history as something that happened thousands of years in the past, but in our lives currently, presently, and always in our future. That it was through uh, Naomi's faith in you that you brought redemption to the world through the giving of your son, Jesus Christ, so that any who would believe in him will not perish but 
have everlasting life. That through faith in Jesus Christ comes forgiveness of sins and eternity. And so we say thank you for this woman and her faith. And we thank you that you turned her triumph into her tragedy into our triumph. And that, Father, you always are working behind the scenes, even when we don't see it and we don't get it. So, God, I pray that for every one of us today, we would walk away from here trusting in you, not just in the good times, but also in the bad, in the feasts and in the famines. And that we would see you moving us to places that we could not imagine going to. So God, we say thank you. Walk with us, walk through us, and give us all that we need to be faithful through it. And all God's people said,